those of you who know me well know I have a favorite book in the Bible, and it is the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to ask if you would to turn there with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 11. I love this whole book. I love it more and more all the time. It's rich with doctrine. It's rich with practical warnings and exhortations. But more than anything else, it's rich with Christ. It is from beginning to end about the excellence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every part of this book points us to Christ and declares to us that Christ is better. The book of Hebrews teaches us clearly that Christ is without rival and without equal. The words better and great occur uh, more than a dozen times referring to our Lord Jesus Christ in this book. In the first three verses of chapter 1, he's better than the prophets. In the rest of chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 2, he is superior to the angels. In chapters 3 and 4, he is greater than Moses. In chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to chapter 10, verse 18, Christ is superior to Aaron, to the Levitical priesthood, to the sacrifices, to the temple, to the old covenant, and everything that's connected to it. We're told in chapter 8 and in chapter 10 that all the Old Testament things are shadows, but that Christ is the real thing that casts a shadow across every page of the Old Testament. And the last part of the book from chapter 10, verse 19, to the end is about the new and living way that we have because of the superiority of Christ. And in this last chapter, we see, in this last section, we see the outworking of Christ's superiority. What does it mean? What does it do? How does it affect us as the people of God? And what are the implications for the way we think and live? And right in the middle of this final section, is chapter 11, the faith chapter. It begins with those famous words in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now this chapter is described uh, by many terms, things like the, the faith hall of fame or the heroes of the faith or the honor roll of Old Testament saints. The writers of Hebrews uh, begins this chapter by making a few statements about faith, and then he gives us an impressive account of God's people living by faith from the very beginning of time all the way to the ultimate example of faithfulness, which we see in chapter 12 in the first three verses, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this chapter, we see example after example of the just living by faith, and their life with God from first to last was based on faith and not on works. And from the very first family and the beginning of human history with Abel in verse 4 of chapter 11 to the people that this book was written to almost 2,000 years ago and to this very day, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is everything. Now, people talk about faith all the time. This is the faith chapter. People talk about faith all the time, and people are happy to talk about faith as long as all you mean is something like you have to have faith or you've got to believe. As long as faith is this 
ambiguous kind of faith that really amounts to nothing more than positive thinking or wishful thinking, then talking about faith is just fine. Or if what we mean by faith is really faith plural, meaning that each person is free to believe anything they want and that it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something, that it makes no difference whether you believe in Jesus or Allah or Buddha or Scientology mumbo-jumbo, it is all really the same as long as you're sincere. If that's what you mean by faith, then many people are happy to talk about faith, and that's all fine and well. But if what you mean by faith is biblical faith, then suddenly it's not acceptable. And the problem is this. Biblical faith says that faith is completely invalid unless it is connected to the proper object of faith, which is God and His Word. From a biblical perspective, faith is only as good as the object that it's placed in. And the only valid object of faith is the God of the Bible. And it's not enough just in some general fuzzy way to believe in God, even the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not possible to understand Him, God, and to believe in Him, God, as biblical faith requires, without also knowing about and believing in Jesus Christ, His Son. So I want us to focus our attention this morning on Hebrews 11.1 1, and God helping us try to understand what this verse says to us about faith. Verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And before we begin looking at this verse, if you would, uh, turn back with me to chapter 10. I want to begin reading at verse 32 and then read down to chapter 11, verse 1, and then I want to read the first three verses of chapter 12. So let's begin by reading, beginning in verse 32, chapter 10, verse 32. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you, were in, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. And you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And yet for a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And over in chapter 12, the first three verses. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may, grow we so you may not grow weary and lose heart. 
And the question before us this morning is, what do these words in verse 1 mean? They certainly sound profound. They sound deep. They sound special. What do we understand that they are telling us about faith? What are the words, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of the things not seen mean? This is actually a very difficult verse to understand, and let me try to explain what the difficulty is. The challenge of understanding this verse is because the two key words in the verse, if you're reading the New American Standard or the ESV, they are the two words assurance and conviction. Those two words are the difficulty. If you're reading the King James Version or the New King James, and the text reads like this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now these two important words, assurance and conviction in one translation, substance and evidence in the other, uh, therein lies the difficulty. Is Hebrews 11.1 1, saying that faith is something subjective, assurance and conviction, are subjective words. Are these words saying that I feel a certain way about things hoped for and things not seen? That I have a sense of confidence and certainty about those things? And this is what faith is. My, my subjective persuasion. That's the way the New American Standard and the ESV have translated these words. Or is Hebrews 11 one saying that, that faith is something objective, substance, and evidence, substance, and proof. That faith is a real thing connected to real things. That the faith that I have by the grace of God is the rock-solid foundation of all that I hope for and the objective proof that things I do not see are real. That this, that this is what faith is, not a persuasion, but an objective reality. And that is the question about how to understand this particular verse. What it, what uh, faith is about here in Hebrews 11 1 something subjective or something objective and there's a very big difference between those two things now the use of these two words in the rest of the New Testament does not really help us the word translated either assurance or substance uh, is a word that means to stand under it's the idea of a foundation or a substructure it can mean that which has substance and is real as opposed to something that just appears to be real. It is that which is the real quality or nature of something. In other words, if you strip away everything from the surface, all the superficial things, and you get down to what something really is, that's what this word means. The word only appears four times in the New Testament, and two of them are in the uh, book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 1.3, we read this. And he is the radiance, speaking of Jesus Christ, he is the radiance of his glory, God's glory, in the exact representation of his nature, that is God's nature. And that word nature is the same word that is either assurance or substance. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the substance of God. He is the exact representation of the reality of God of his essence and being. And if you strip away everything and get down to what God really is, Jesus Christ is exactly that. That's what Hebrews 1, 3 says. And in all the versions, it's translated in an objective way. The ESV has the word nature, King James Version, the word person. It's an objective word here. But in Hebrews three fourteen, we read this. 
For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The word assurance is our word. In the King James and in the ESV, our word is translated confidence, assurance. So it's translated here subjectively. So we're not helped by Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 3 because it's used one way in one verse. It's used in the other way in the other. By the way, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word occur, occurs about 20 times, and it's used in 12 very distinctly different ways, and so we don't get any help uh, from that as well. There's one very interesting way that this word was used in secular writings. Over the centuries, many ancient documents have been found, uh, things like legal records, business documents, bills of sale, shopping lists, uh, you can imagine the kind of things that have been found throughout the centuries that are old uh, things that were written in Greek. And this particular word was often used to refer to a title deed. A title deed is the official record that establishes and proves your ownership of property. It's the foundation of your ownership rights. How do you secure the ownership of your home? I don't think you sit on the front porch with a shotgun in your lap and protect your ownership rights that way. The way we protect our ownership rights and make it secure and make it certain is we have a valid legal deed to our property. And that's why this word was used oftentimes in ancient Greek writings and secular writings, the title deed. In other words, the conviction and evidence. The other, uh, the other word uh, in our verse, the, of the two words, is the word that's translated conviction of evidence or evidence. And it's no better. This word and the words that are related to it are used both subjectively and objectively throughout the New Testament. So is the faith of verse 1 a subjective thing or an objective thing? How are we to understand Hebrews 11.1? 1? Well, I think the answer to understanding verse 1 lies in its context. Now, the chapter division is unfortunate here. Chapter 11, verse 1, should not be the start of a new chapter. It's not even the start of a new paragraph. It should be connected to the preceding verses as a single continuing thought. John Calvin said this, Whoever made this the beginning of the 11th chapter has unwisely disjointed the context. I strongly suggest to you that there's a single thought and argument that begins back in chapter 10, verse 32, and that ends all the way in chapter 12, verse 3. And the thought of this argument is this. In the last part of chapter 10, you need to endure in the faith. The just live by faith. It is God's will for your life that you endure until the day that you receive all that God has promised you in Christ. Then in chapter 11, he says, By the way, the just have always lived by faith. And here are many examples to prove it. Then in chapter 12, in the first three verses... Uh, and more than all of those wonderful examples for you, you need to fix your eyes on the greatest of all the people of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to consider him, and you will endure. You will not grow weary, and you will not lose heart. And right in the middle of all this is our verse, Hebrews 11.1. 1. So let's go back to chapter 10, verse 32, and let's see if we can understand what, how we should understand uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. Let's go back to verse 32. In chapter 10. Verse 32 says this, But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. Our writer is telling his readers to think back 
He says, in your past Christian experience, you endured suffering for Christ's sake. He calls it a great conflict, indicating that it was really hard. It was a hard struggle, a great struggle that they were in. Endurance in the faith has been part of your Christian past, he says to these believers. Think back to those days when you were first enlightened. Your faith was challenged, but you endured. Don't forget that. Remember. Now, that extremely important phrase is found in, note that there's an extremely important phrase that's found in the middle of verse 32, and it's these words. It's the words, after being enlightened. Enlightened means to give light or to shine light. We get our English word photo from this Greek word. Enlightenment is a good word to describe our conversion to Christ because when we are saved, we do in fact pass from darkness to light. Luke 179 tells us that Jesus came into the world to shine upon those who sit in darkness. And Peter in 1 Peter 2.9 says that God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This word is a past tense, passive verb, past tense. It is completed in the past. Whatever it was, it already happened. And it's a passive word. The people who are enlightened are not doing anything. Something is being done to them. God is the active one. God is active. He is the one that is acting in this verb. The ones being enlightened are being acted upon. Someone is shining the light on or into them. If you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The enlightenment is it. This enlightenment that he's talking about here is specifically addressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, this is the same passage, if you'll remember, that uh, Pastor Justin brought us to and addressed last Sunday morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to read verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ." The enlightenment that Paul is speaking of here and that the writer of Hebrews is referring to it as well is this. It is the creative act of God whereby in the same way that he spoke light into the utter darkness of the newly created world in the very beginning when there was no light, in the very same way he speaks light into the hearts of unsaved people, he makes them see, he gives them faith, and he saves them. Ephesians 2.8 says it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Verse 6 here in 2 Corinthians says, says God is the one who is shown in our, light, in our hearts to give the light. God gives the light. It is His creative work. Let there be light. And there was light, God says. And that is what happens in the heart when we are brought to faith. And when we believe. Verse 4 says that our minds are blinded and that Satan, the God of this world, is keeping us that way so that we will not see the light of the gospel. How then is anyone saved? How does anyone ever believe? How does anyone who is blind see the light? 
Well, it is because it is the creative act of God. He says, let there be light, and light shines out of darkness. And at the beginning of this whole discourse about faith that begins here and goes all the way to chapter 12, verse 3, this is the starting point. This is the source and cause of it. It is the work of God in the heart that enlightens the soul. And let me ask you, is that not exactly what we see the writer of this letter return to at the very end in chapter 12, verse 2, when he says that Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of faith? He says that Christ is the author and perfecter, the founder and perfecter, the author and finisher. This means that Jesus Christ is the alpha and the omega of our faith, the first and the last of it. He starts it and he finishes it. He initiates it. And he makes it be all that it needs to be. He is the perfecter of our faith. And I want to suggest to you that these words, after being enlightened, we, uh, in these words, we're beginning to have our question about Hebrews 11 one answered. Our faith is the thing of substance that the creative act of God has placed in our hearts. We either have been given faith or we have not. It is either something real that God has done, or it is not. After you were enlightened, he says, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And he goes on in verses 33 and 34 to give some specifics of what they had endured in the past. Verses 33 and 34 say this, Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Now, we really have a hard time relating to what we read here. Our Christian life in the United States is so different from this, but it is not different for, from this for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Some, you see the word partly in this verse, or sometimes, some were made a public spectacle. Public spectacle is the word that we get our English word theater from. It means to be put on a stage, to be made a spectacle. It's a very public thing, to be exposed to contempt. These Christians were exposed to open public humiliation and ridicule and insult. And we're told how that they were done, treated in this way. It says, by reproach and by tribulations. By reproach being that they were reviled, they were shamed, they were being disgraced. And tribulations, literally that word tribulation is to, is to put pressure on something, to press down on something. They were oppressed, they were persecuted, they were afflicted, they were troubled, they were harassed. It was open public shame, it was open public hostility. Others, you'll see the second word partly in this verse, Others stood with those who were persecuted. They showed solidarity that, with those who were suffering. They shared in it. They didn't run and hide. They gave them aid and comfort. They all suffered together. They stood together. Our verse says, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Not only was there per public persecution, but some of them were actually thrown into prison. Now, being put into prison then was not like being put in prison now. It's not like being put in an Ash County jail. It was to be put in the most horrible circumstances. It was to be put into conditions that were virtually unlivable. 
and the Roman government did not provide you anything. You were dependent on your family and friends to bring your daily food or to bring you clothes or a blanket or whatever you needed to survive. It was a truly desperate situation. Now here's the problem. Are you going to go down to the prison every day to see one of those Christians? Are you going to go there knowing that just by going you are drawing attention to yourself and, and, you're, and that you are being brought to the attention of the authorities? Are you going to go knowing that your name may go on a list? Are you going to go knowing that you may be saying, come get me next? Are you going to go knowing that you may be the next public spectacle or you may be the next one that is seized or thrown into prison? But these people did go. Our verse says they showed sympathy to the prisoners. They were just living out the words of Jesus. Jesus said, I was in prison and you came to me. When did we come to you? When you did it to my brothers, even the least, you did it to me, Christ says. And they took their faith seriously enough to not let, let the risk stop them from serving those who were suffering. They gladly took the risk for love's sake. They gladly took the risk for Christ's sake. Now talk about body life. Well, that was really it. One member suffered. They all suffered together. And then our verse says, And they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. What would you think if we left the service this morning and went outside and someone had gone through the parking lot and broke the windows in all the cars just because we were Christians. Or suppose you went home today, and when you got home, there was a graffiti on the side of your house. And you went inside, and someone had broken in, and they had looted your home just because you were a Christian. And they were harassing you, and they were ridiculing you, and they were persecuting you because you were a Christian. Would you come back to church next week? If the government was seizing the property of people who were openly known to be, uh, openly known in the community to be Christians, would you still be here week after week? And note that our verse says that these people accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. How did they live through that with joy? If those things happened to us, we would think that's the end of the world. This says they, they accepted those things Joyfully, well, the answer is also in our verse when it says this, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting ones. Christians can and do endure hardship because they know something. They know that having Christ is better. He is a better possession than anything else we might have. And he is a lasting one. All of our other possessions will pass away. 100% they will pass but what we have in Christ will last forever. And it is when we endure in the face of challenge that we prove what we really care about and what we really believe in. And so these people in the past did endure. You know, when I think about this, I have to, um, I have to kind of just drop my head down and, and say, ask myself, would I be a faithful Christian if right now my life was like that? It's a hard question to answer. Very sobering thing to think about. 
Then we come to this strong exhortation and challenge in verses 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You endured hard things in the past, but you need to endure now. Christians are not just people who at one time believed, who believed in the past. Christians are people who believe now and who, and who continue to believe into the future. Don't throw away your confidence, he says. You need to endure. When we talk about confidence and endurance, what are we really talking about? We're talking about faith. We're talking about believing and to continue in our Christian faith. Your endurance has what verse 35 calls a great reward that goes along with it. Your endurance has what verse 36 calls receiving what was promised. Verse 36 tells us to do the will of God so that we can receive what was promised. You ever think about what is the will of God for my life? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Well, here's the answer. It is that you endure. The will of God for you is that you continue to believe. It is that you walk by faith and keep on walking by faith. The writer wants his readers to have that reward, to receive the promises. And so he warns and, exhort, and exhorts, be careful, don't give up. There is something worth having at the end. Though we are blessed now and there is reward right now in having Christ, the greatest reward is not yet. The fullness of blessing is yet to come, and we will not receive it if we do not continue to endure. We must per persevere to receive it. Now, we have a tendency to think that it is somehow unspiritual to be motivated by reward, that somehow that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. It's a very interesting topic, and we don't have time to talk about it this morning. But let me point out that the Scriptures constantly encourage us in this way. What do we do when we find the pearl of great price? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do everything we can to obtain it because it is something of great value and we should want to have it. And let me remind you that even the Lord Jesus Christ himself had this motivation. If you look uh, down in chapter 12, verse 2 that we read just a few minutes ago, in the middle of the verse it says this, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He endured the cross for the reward, for what would be accomplished by his doing so. And then our writer quotes from the Old Testament to support what he is saying about enduring. Verses 37 and 38 are taken from Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk chapter 2. And they say this, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Some, the just, live by faith. Others shrink back. God has no pleasure no blessing for those who do not walk by faith. And by implication, he does have pleasure in the believing ones. And note the reference in verse 37. In a very little while, Christ will come. The days of believing and enduring are short. They will pass quickly. But what comes then will be forever. Now we come to the heart of the matter in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The we here is very emphatic 
uh, in the Greek text. He says in the very strongest possible way, I am not of those who shrink back, the writer says. You are not of those who shrink back. We are not of those who shrink back. We are not among those who throw away our confidence. We don't shrink back from following Christ. We are the ones who live by faith. Now let's make no mistake about what it means to shrink back. Let's be dead serious about what it means to not be a believing person right now, today. To shrink back, our verse says, means to go to destruction. The word that's in, this word destruction here is a very common New Testament word that refers to God's condemnation and judgment. It means to perish. It means to be ruined. The King James Version says perdition, to go into perdition. It is to be lost in the fullness of all that that means. Shrinking back does not mean to lose some of the benefits or to lose some of the blessings. Shrinking back is to lose everything. It is to be utterly ruined. It is to be crushed and destroyed by God. This means that every single person in this room needs to ask themselves this question. Do I have faith? You know, there are only two kinds of people in this world, those with faith, those without faith, those who are, are enlightened and are saved, those who are still in darkness and are lost. If you do not have faith, that lack of faith is, according to this verse, to destruction. If you're not a Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ is right before you. Will you shrink back from him? and leave this morning without believing? Please, please, take this warning seriously. If you do, leave this morning without embracing Christ. You are shrinking back to destruction. I beg you, be one of those who believes and is saved. Don't shrink back from Christ. Our writer then makes this powerful, confident statement about himself and these Christian people. At the end of the verse, he says, But there are people who shrink back, but not us. And in the verse, he says, We are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We are of those who have a justifying, enduring faith. We belong to the righteous ones who live by faith. Note the word preserving. Sometimes it's translated saving. This word has the idea of preserving something, or it can mean uh, something like taking possession of something or obtaining something. The idea is that we are those who actually have faith with the result that our soul is kept safe and we don't lose it. Instead, we preserve it and we keep it. And what a wonderful statement of hope and confidence this is for God's people. Now we can ask the question, how does he know? How does the writer of this book know? How can he make such a strong, positive, confident statement? How can he say, I know that we are of those who have faith? Well, he can, he can, uh, he can say that we will indeed persevere and arrive safe to the very end and that we will obtain the saving of our soul because God will preserve us to guarantee that we will not shrink back. 
Our faith, which is God's gift, doesn't stop to be a gracious gift after we become a Christian. God continues to give you faith through the Spirit and the Word. God continues to give you faith by His grace. Do you think you keep on believing because you're strong? Do you endure on your own to the end? Can you make it all the way by yourself? I hope you know that the answer to that is no. Must you persevere? Yes, you must. Will you persevere? Yes, because God will preserve you. Preservation and perseverance go hand in hand. Peter says it like this, 1 Peter 1.5, You are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. How do you know that you're actually going to persevere and, and be of those who continue in the faith to the preserving of the soul and not be one of those who shrink back to destruction? Well, it's because, it's because God says you are His and He will protect you and keep you by His power. And what does it look like if God is keeping you? Well, Peter says, by the power of God through faith. It is not apart from faith and believing that God's power keeps us. God's power preserves your faith. He keeps it and protects it, and you continue to believe. Perseverance and faithfulness are your solemn and necessary duty and obligation, but it is guaranteed for God's people because He preserves them to the end. Jude says it this way in verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And I hope when we read that, we say amen. Can you say amen to that? He is able to keep you from stumbling. Do you think you can walk safely all the way to heaven without falling all by yourself? Jude says that God will make you stand in the presence of His glory. And in order to do that, He must keep and protect your faith all the way to the end so that you will not stumble and that you will not shrink back. You may think, I feel weak. I feel wobbly. I feel temptation. I feel trials. As the hymn says that we sing oftentimes, I feel prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love. And let me add that you and I are, are not even as strong as we think we are. God help us if we think that we're strong enough to make it on our own without the constant grace and help of Christ our Savior. Do you remember Peter? Peter, whose name means rock. Peter, the rock. Peter, strong-willed, compassionate in his zeal for Christ. Jesus says, you will all fall away because of me this night. You know what Peter says back? Even though all fall away from you, or all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That was Peter's response to Christ's words. Do you ever think like that? I'll never leave Christ. Jesus tells him, Satan has demanded per permission to sift you like, like wheat. And dear ones, he will sift him in the coming hours. Do you know what Peter's response to, was to that? 
Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. That's what Peter said back to him. Peter, the rock. In just a few hours, a little teenage girl is going to walk up to Peter and say, weren't you with him? And he's going to throw away all of his faithfulness. He's not going to do any of those things he just said moments before. He's going to say, I don't know him. And Matthew's gospel says that he began to curse and swear that I do not know him. Peter, the rock. There's something else that, Peter, that Christ said to Peter. Christ said, Peter is Christ said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do weak sheep make it? You can better believe they do. They make it because they have a good shepherd that prays for them. How in the world do you know that you will not be one of those that will shrink back to destruction? Because he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of, of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. How do you know that you won't be shaken from your faith because of trials and the hard things that come into your life and the discouragements and the disappointments that you have? What about your own sinful heart and the things that we think and do that are so wrong? How do you know that you won't be a castaway and you won't make shipwreck of your faith? Well, it is because neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, depth nor any other created thing will, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, and He will preserve us. He will keep us. The reason we persevere is because God says, I will preserve you to the very end. Hebrews 7, 25, Therefore He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is able to save us forever. He is saving us today. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I do know this. He will be able to save me tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day until the very end. He is able to save forever those that come to God through him. And I know the reason that's given in Hebrews 7.25 is because he ever lives to make intercession. I'm being saved on and on because he makes intercession on and on. Now, intercession involves many things. It's complex and, and a rich and wonderful thing. But whatever it means and whatever the many things are that are involved in it, there is certainly one thing that stands front and center, one thing that is right at the heart of it. It means that Christ prays for me. Remember Peter? Do you think that Christ's prayer for him, Christ's intercession for him was answered? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Dear ones, the Lord Jesus Christ prays for you, and he prays for me, and he prays that our faith will not fail. And dear ones, our, his prayers on our, our behalf will be heard, and they will be answered. 
And that is how we know that we are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And that brings us full circle back to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What is he saying in this verse that faith is? Is our writer saying something subjective or something objective? Is he saying that faith is the good feeling that you have about the things that you hope for? Is he saying that faith is feeling really assured and confident? Is he saying that faith is feeling really positive about things that we cannot see? I hope all of these things are true about us that I just said. I hope we feel that way. I think our writer is not saying that, though. I think he's saying something very different. I think this is what he's saying. I know that you and I, we, are not of those who shrink back, but we are of those who have faith and will have faith. And how do I know? How can I be sure? It's because the faith that was given to us when we were first enlightened, the faith we received as the gift of God and that opened our eyes so that we could see the light of the gospel, that faith is the substance, it's the rock-solid foundation, the title deed to all the things we hope for. And our faith, our believing, our being a believing person by grace is the certain proof, the evidence of those things that are unseen. That we don't walk around with uncertainty. We don't walk around wondering if the unseen things are real or not. We know because the God of heaven has put something at the very core of our being that is objective, that is real, that is rock solid, and that is certain. Our faith. And, I, and brethren, we ought to celebrate when we think about those things. Is there anything better than this to, than to know that we are not of those who shrink back and that, and that we are those who have faith even to the preserving, the saving of our soul? Now in chapter 12 and verses 2 and 3 we read this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Weak Christian, doubting, timid Christian, Christian who is limping and struggling along, Fix your eyes on Christ. He will preserve you. He will keep you. He is the one who prays for you and intercedes for you right now and forever. Look to Christ. He is the one who has said, As you run, I am right there with you, and I will not let you stop running until the very end. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer.